Section 9 of L'Assommoir This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giessen L'Assommoir by Émile Zola Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli Chapter 3 Gervaise did not want to have a wedding party. What was the use of spending money? Besides, she still felt somewhat ashamed. It seemed to her quite unnecessary to parade the marriage before the whole neighbourhood. But Coupeau cried out at that. One could not be married without having a feed. He did not care a button for the people of the neighbourhood. Nothing elaborate, just a short walk and a rabbit ragout in the first eating-house they fancied. No music with dessert, just a glass or two, and then back home. The zinc worker, chaffing and joking, at length got the young woman to consent by promising her that there should be no larks. He would keep his eye on the glasses to prevent sunstrokes. Then he organized a sort of picnic at five francs a head at the silver windmill, kept by Auguste on the boulevard de la Chapelle. It was a small café with moderate charges, and had a dancing place in the rear, beneath the three acacias in the courtyard. They would be very comfortable on the first floor. During the next ten days he got hold of guests in the house where his sister lived, in the rue de la Goutte d'Or. Monsieur Madinier, Mademoiselle Romanjou, Madame Gaudron, and her husband. He even ended by getting Gervaise to consent to the presence of two of his comrades. Bibi the smoker, and My Boots. No doubt My Boots was a boozer, but then he had such a fantastic appetite that he was always asked to join these sort of gatherings, just for the sight of the caterer's mug when he beheld that bottomless pit swallowing his twelve pounds of bread. The young woman on her side promised to bring her employer, Madame Fauconnier, and the Boche, some very agreeable people. On counting, they found there would be fifteen to sit down to table, which was quite enough. When there are too many, they always wind up by quarrelling. Coupeau, however, had no money. Without wishing to show off, he intended to behave handsomely. He borrowed fifty francs of his employer. Out of that, he first of all purchased the wedding ring, a twelve-franc gold wedding ring, which Lorilleux procured for him at the wholesale price of nine francs. He then bought himself a frock-coat, a pair of trousers, and a waistcoat at a tailor's in the Rue Mirat, to whom he gave merely twenty-five francs on account. His patent-leather shoes and his hat were still good enough. When he had put by the ten francs for his and Gervaise's share of the feast, the two children not being charged for, he had exactly six francs left, the price of a low mass at the altar of the poor. He had no liking for those black crows, the priests. It would gripe him to pay his last six francs to keep their whistles wet. However, a marriage without a mass wasn't a real marriage at all. Going to the church himself, he bargained for a whole hour with a little old priest in a dirty cassock who was as sharp at dealing as a pushcart peddler. Cooper felt like boxing his ears. For a joke, he asked the priest if he didn't have a second-hand mass that would do for a modest young couple. The priest, 
mumbling that God would take small pleasure in blessing their union, finally let him have his mass for five francs. Well, after all, that meant twenty sous saved. Gervaise also wanted to look decent. As soon as the marriage was settled, she made her arrangements, worked extra time in the evenings, and managed to put thirty francs on one side. She had a great longing for a little silk mantle marked thirteen francs in the Rue du Faubourg Poissonniere. She treated herself to it, and then bought for ten francs of the husband of a washerwoman who had died in Madame Fauconnier's house a blue woollen dress, which she altered to fit herself. With the seven francs remaining, she procured a pair of cotton gloves, a rose for her cap, and some shoes for Claude, her eldest boy. Fortunately, the youngster's blouses were passable. She spent four nights cleaning everything and mending the smallest holes in her stockings and chemise. On Friday night, the eve of the great day, Gervaise and Coupeau had still a good deal of running about to do up till eleven o'clock after returning home from work. Then, before separating for the night, they spent an hour together in the young woman's room, happy at being about to be released from their awkward position. In spite of the fact that they had originally resolved not to put themselves out to impress the neighbours, they had ended by taking it seriously and working themselves till they were weary. By the time they said good-night, they were almost asleep on their feet. They breathed a great sigh of relief now that everything was ready. Coupeau's witnesses were to be Monsieur Madinier and Bibi the Smoker. They were counting on Lorilleux and Boche for Gervaise's witnesses. They were to go quietly to the mayor's office and the church, just the six of them, without a whole procession of people trailing behind them. The bridegroom's two sisters had even declared that they would stay home, their presence not being necessary. Coupeau's mother, however, had sobbed and wailed, threatening to go ahead of them and hide herself in some corner of the church until they had promised to take her along. The meeting of the guests was set for one o'clock at the silver windmill. From there they would go to Saint-Denis, going out by railroad and returning on foot along the highway, in order to work up an appetite. The party promised to be quite all right. Saturday morning, while getting dressed, Coupeau felt a qualm of uneasiness in view of the single franc in his pocket. He began to think that it was a matter of ordinary courtesy to offer a glass of wine and a slice of ham to the witnesses while awaiting dinner. Also, there might be unforeseen expenses. So, after taking Claude and Etienne to stay with Madame Boche, who was to bring them to the dinner later that afternoon, he hurried over to the Rue de la Goutte d'Or to borrow ten francs from Lorilleux. Having to do that griped him immensely, as he could guess the attitude his brother-in-law would take. The latter did grumble a bit, but ended by lending him two five-franc pieces. However, Coupeau overheard his sister muttering under her breath, This is a fine beginning. The ceremony at the mayor's was to take place at half-past ten. It was beautiful weather. The magnificent sun seemed to roast the streets. So as not to be stared at, the bride and bridegroom, the old mother and the four witnesses, separated into two bands. 
Gervaise walked in front with Laurier, who gave her his arm, whilst Monsieur Madinier followed with Mother Coupeau. Then, twenty steps behind, on the opposite side of the way, came Coupeau, Boche, and Bibi the smoker. These three were in black frock coats, walking erect and swinging their arms. Boche's trousers were bright yellow. Bibi the smoker didn't have a waistcoat, so he was buttoned up to the neck with only a bit of his cravat showing. The only one in a full-dress suit was Monsieur Madinier, and passers-by gazed at this well-dressed gentleman escorting the huge bulk of Mother Coupeau in her green shawl and black bonnet with red ribbons. Gervaise looked very gay and sweet in her dress of vivid blue, and with her new silk mantle fitted tightly to her shoulders. She listened politely to the sneering remarks of Laurier, who seemed buried in the depths of the immense overcoat he was wearing. From time to time, Gervaise would turn her head a little to smile brightly at Coupeau, who was rather uncomfortable under the hot sun in his new clothes. Though they walked very slowly, they arrived at the mayor's quite half an hour too soon, and as the mayor was late, their turn was not reached till close upon eleven o'clock. They sat down on some chairs and waited in a corner of the apartment, looking by turns at the high ceiling and bare walls, talking low, and over-politely pushing back their chairs each time that one of the attendants passed. Yet among themselves they called the mayor a sluggard, saying he must be visiting his blonde to get a massage for his gout, or that maybe he'd swallowed his official sash. However, when the mayor did put in his appearance, they rose respectfully in his honour. They were asked to sit down again, and they had to wait through three other marriages. The hall was crowded with the three bourgeois wedding parties, brides all in white, little girls with carefully curled hair, bridesmaids wearing wide sashes, an endless procession of ladies and gentlemen dressed in their best and looking very stylish. When at length they were called, they almost missed being married altogether. Bibi the smoker having disappeared, Bosch discovered him outside smoking his pipe. Well, they were a nice lot inside there to humbug people about like that, just because one hadn't yellow kid gloves to shove under their noses. And the various formalities, the reading of the code, the different questions to be put, the signing of all the documents, were all got through so rapidly that they looked at each other with an idea that they'd been robbed of a good half of the ceremony. Gervaise, dizzy, her heart full, pressed her handkerchief to her lips. Mother Coupeau wept bitterly. All had signed the register, writing their names in big struggling letters, with the exception of the bridegroom, who, not being able to write, had put his cross. They each gave four sous for the poor. When an attendant handed Coupeau the marriage certificate, the latter, prompted by Gervaise, who nudged his elbow, handed him another five sous. It was a fair walk from the mayor's office in the town hall to the church. The men stopped along the way to have a beer. Mother Coupeau and Gervaise took cassis with water. Then they had to trudge along the long street where the sun glared down without the relief of shade. When they arrived at the church, they were hurried along and asked if they came so late in order to make a mockery of religion. 
A priest came forward, his face pale and resentful from having to delay his lunch. An altar boy in a soiled surplice ran before him. The mass went very fast, with the priest turning, bowing his head, spreading out his arms, making all the ritual gestures in haste while casting sidelong glances at the group. Gervaise and Coupeau, before the altar, were embarrassed, not knowing when they should kneel or rise or seat themselves, expecting some indication from the attendant. The witnesses, not knowing what was proper, remained standing during the ceremony. Mother Coupeau was weeping again, shedding her tears into the missile she had borrowed from a neighbour. Meanwhile, the noon chimes had sounded, and the church began to fill with noise from the shuffling feet of sacristans and the clatter of chairs being put back in place. The high altar was apparently being prepared for some special ceremony. Thus, in the depths of this obscure chapel, amid the floating dust, the surly priest placed his withered hands on the bared heads of Gervaise and Coupeau, blessing their union amid a hubbub like that of moving day. The wedding party signed another registry, this time in the sacristy, and then found themselves out in the bright sunlight before the church doors, where they stood for a moment, breathless and confused from having been carried along at such breakneck speed. Voila! said Coupeau with an embarrassed laugh. But it sure didn't take long. They shove it at you so. It's like being at the painless dentist who doesn't give you time to cry out. Here you get a painless wedding. Yes, it's a quick job, Lorieux smirked. In five minutes you're tied together for the rest of your life. You poor young Cassis, you've had it. The four witnesses whacked Coupeau on the shoulders as he arched his back against the friendly blows. Meanwhile, Gervaise was hugging and kissing Mother Coupeau, her eyes moist, a smile lighting her face. She replied reassuringly to the old woman's sobbing. Don't worry, I'll do my best. I want so much to have a happy life. If it doesn't work out, it won't be my fault. Anyhow, it's done now. It's up to us to get along together and do the best we can for each other. After that, they went straight to the silver windmill. Coupeau had taken his wife's arm. They walked quickly, laughing as though carried away, quite two hundred steps ahead of the others, without noticing the houses or the passers-by or the vehicles. The deafening noises of the faubourg sounded like bells in their ears. When they reached the wine shop, Coupeau at once ordered two bottles of wine, some bread and some slices of ham to be served in the little glazed closet on the ground floor, without plates or tablecloth, simply to have a snack. Then, noticing that Bush and Bibi the smoker seemed to be very hungry, he had a third bottle brought, as well as a slab of brie cheese. Mother Coupeau was not hungry, being too choked up to be able to eat. Gervaise found herself very thirsty, and drank several large glasses of water with a small amount of wine added. "'I'll settle for this,' said Coupeau, going at once to the bar, where he paid four francs and five sous. It was now one o'clock, and the other guests began to arrive. Madame Fauconnier, a fat woman, still good-looking, first put in an appearance. She wore a chintz dress with a flowery pattern a pink tie, and a cap over-trimmed with flowers. Next came Mademoiselle Romanjou, 
looking very thin in the eternal black dress which she seemed to keep on even when she went to bed. And the two Gaudrons, the husband like some heavy animal and almost bursting his brown jacket at the slightest movement, the wife an enormous woman whose figure indicated evident signs of an approaching maternity and whose stiff violet-coloured skirt still more increased her rotundity. Coupeau explained that they were not to wait for my boots. His comrade would join the party on the route de Saint-Denis. Well, exclaimed Madame de Rat as she entered, it'll pour in torrents soon. That'll be pleasant. End of first part of chapter three. Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey.